0: This is Rusty Reno, editor of First Things Magazine, and welcome to the Editor's Desk, first regular First Things podcast where we talk about material in the latest issues of First Things. And I have with me today Colin Redeemer, the vice president of the Davenant Institute, who did a, a really a marvelous review for us of Collective Bargain Unions Organizing in the Fight for Democracy by Jay McAlevey. And it's in the December. 2022 issue of First Things Magazine. Colin, welcome to the podcast.
1: Oh, it's great to be here, Rusty.
0: Now, union and unionization is a, is a kind of a concern of yours, and you've written on this, as I take it. Where can our listeners go to get, to get your, your take on this?
1: That's right. I've actually helped found a union before and also have done some theoretical thinking on it. And I have a chapter in the book, Protestant Social Teaching, that the Davenant Institute put out this last fall. And I've got a whole chapter in there thinking through from a theoretical basis, both in classical philosophy as well as theologically, why is it that Christians ought to be thinking about unionization and how does that fit with a Protestant doctrine of vocation, really?
0: Before we get going, tell listeners about the Daviden Institute.
1: Yeah, the Daviden Institute advances and renews Christian wisdom for the contemporary church. And so you know, one, one way to think of it is we're a little bit of a Protestant think tank trying to do recovery and resourcement work from the Magisterial Reformation. But we're not just sort of eggheads. We we have classes that we offer. We run conferences. We're trying to figure out how do we recover these things so that they can be useful for the challenges of the modern church.
0: And what union did you found?
1: I'm also an adjunct professor at St. Mary's College in the Bay Area, and we Several years ago, I was, I was a co-founder, got together as the adjunct faculty and decided we wanted to have a union. So it was, you know, it's, it's, it's actually quite an exciting experience at first, and then it becomes a much more bureaucratic experience once you've got your union going.
0: <laughs> when I was a graduate student in the late 1980s, I opposed the unionization on the grounds of graduate student teaching assistants on the grounds that it was a mentor-mentee relation between professor and grad student assistant. But I must say that as higher ed became more and more transparently dependent upon army of proletarian teachers and the, and the tenured professors got more and more remote from the classroom, I changed my view. And I think I'm, and I, I now support unionization of, of those who carry the burden of a great deal of teaching in, in the university context paid ridiculously ridiculously low wages in, in most situations. So thank you for starting that union at St. Mary's.
1: Absolutely. And, and in, in the case of, of adjunct faculty, I mean, the, the data on this is so extensive that anybody can go look it up. But it, it's very clearly an exploitative situation. The administrations of these universities have grown, tenure track, hiring has, has been flatlined for 30, 40, 50 years real wages of faculty have gone down and it's bad for the students. I mean, the students are, what I always tell my students is for some reason, for the last 20, 30 years, you've all been paying more every year, year over year, but asked to sort of read less, held the lower standards. You know, it's clearly bad for you. And what I tell adjunct faculty is that the greatest benefit, not only are we being paid better, but really, if you want academic freedom, if you really want to be an academic, be able to sort of think and, and publish like the thing I published in your magazine you, you have to have a level of job protection. And, and I have a bet going with some of my tenured colleagues about whether or not you know, my union or their tenure is actually gonna end up being better job protection when, when push comes to shove. So we'll see how that works out.
0: You can eliminate entire departments because of financial exigency. And I think a lot of faculty don't realize that although their tenure protects them from arbitrarily being dismissed, it doesn't protect their job. They're not guaranteed a job. There are lots of ways that tenure faculty can can be terminated.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and you know both justly and unjustly. And you know if you if you don't have a union or if you don't have a, a sense of solidarity among the workplace, really, because that's that's what mm-hmm. you're talking about when you're talking about a union. Um, then you really are at the at the whims of a manager, which which can be great if you have a good manager, and it can be you know not so great.
0: Why to 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 your review? Why did the word union? become a negative word. That's in my lifetime, I think. I was born in 1959. Mm-hmm. I think the 70s, the un- word union took on a negative term.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I, I would hate to disparage the Republican Revolution under under Ronald Reagan, but, I, you know, something in there, in that era happened. And I think it was something on the conservative political movement, but also, obviously, we got to put some of it at the feet of the unions. And so there's, there's a point in history where it unions become what I would call a controlled issue where it's completely dominated by one side of the you know political spectrum. And, and once that happens, you know, that side, when they know you have, they have you as a voting block, they don't really have to pay that much attention to you. So for, for a while, I've been comparing it to, you know, like abortion is basically a one one party issue, which means that that party doesn't really have to sort of pay all that much attention to people who care about pro life issues because because they know which way you're going to vote and and the unions i mean the other piece is i think at the from the founding of union legislation unions have in the united states taken a particular form of adversariality and and also we have in our anti discrimination law made it so that it's illegal to form a union based upon christian principles which is not the case in most of europe it's not the case in in most other countries and so that really means what's the motivating principle behind unionization and far too often it's just resentment in the in the classical sense you could read about that from max scheller and it's you know it's a term that he's extracting from nietzsche it's about power dynamics and confrontation and you know for people who aren't academics you can see it most clearly if you talk to people who work in unions you know you hear Things like, you know, we're not against our managers. Even we're really—it's about the one percent. They—they get really upset about the one percent. And at the same time, you know, if you ask this person over a beer, you know, off the job, well, wouldn't you like to be a member of the one you know, percent? Every one of them would <laughs> say yes. And so, this this strange motivation that they're sort of opposing this thing that they really want—that thing—and they, and they can't quite reason their way through it. I think the Christian perspective on unionization would say, ultimately, it is actually about the love of the work. It's the love of the craft that drives you to want what's best for the craft. And the fact of the matter is anyone who's ever been a craftsman, who's had a manager that hasn't been in the craft for a few years knows there's going to be aspects of how the craft is done that are only visible to the person who's engaging in the craft. And and at, and that at that level, you would say, well, then those craftsmen need to sort of work together so that they can give the feedback to the management to be able to say, here's how it's done, here's what we need, and, and in my experience, I've I've seen that happen in various places.
0: I do agree that in the U.S., we have there is a kind of people call it the American dream, right, to be a big success. So I would say there's less tendency towards working-class solidarity in the U.S. as a consequence as compared to other countries. And so unions, they don't play the same. Well, maybe they didn't in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, played an important role for neighborhood solidarity, longshoremen's union, all that kind of stuff. But it doesn't seem to be the case in in more recent decades. They're just job protection, wage enhancement.
1: Well, what, what the American dream is, has probably shifted to some extent, right? I mean, in my grandparents' generation, the American dream for them really was when they got out of the military service that they were in, they wanted to move back to the towns they were from and raise a family. And, you know, it's like 2.5 children on a white picket fence. You know, if you think about the millennials, Gen Z, you know, the, the American dream is being a TikTok star. I'm not exactly sure. You know, it's, it's sort of having, having a mass influence, being fabulously wealthy and that shift. You know took place over however many 70 years or so but it's it's a very different dream now
0: i do think also there's been a change that a couple of generations ago to be a productive member of society to do your job well to be a good parent and upstanding member of the community ideal whereas now we throw on words like innovator to be creative that's a more individualistic kind of vision seems to me of what the ideal worker is. And that then runs counter to the union impulse, which as you say is workplace solidarity, not, you know, the individual performer.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, there's a reason why innovation was a dirty word for Plato. Um, and (laughs) you know, and, and so we talk a lot about creative disruption and maybe there's some good in that. You know, I, I can see, creative disruption, having done some good for, for example, airlines used to be you know, very highly standardized. You bought your ticket. It was kind of one ticket, but of course humans aren't highly standardized. And so, you know, if I have to sit, I'm an extremely large person. If I have to sit on a plane between California and, and New York city, I'm happy to pay an extra 70, 80 bucks to get the four inches of legroom that, that mm-hmm. somebody, my wife's size doesn't need or care about. So innovation can be helpful. But the, the sense of creative disruption, the sense that everything should be subjected to to market capitalism, you know, maybe works in some cases, but then in other cases, what you're really talking about is the creative disruption and creative destruction of human lives.
0: And communities as well.
1: Yep, right. Well, and I mean, lives in that extensive sense. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Today's Wall Street Journal had an op-ed arguing that too much public support will Create disincentives for people to move from places like California to Pittsburgh, where uh, cost of living is lower. But there's no sense that people actually want to live where they're from, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. near their relatives. Yeah, it, it's uh, I find myself I chuckle, but it's worth it's not all that funny actually because it's no. actual people's lives and communities that are disrupted and in many some cases destroyed.
1: And in academia, you hear about this all the time. You know, the only place I could get a job is you know. Some far-flung corner of the world where I don't know anyone and people go do it and then oftentimes regret it. I'm I'm extremely blessed, and I'll just say this publicly to be able to live in in a community where I'm driving distance to almost my entire extended family.
0: Oh well, you are fortunate.
1: It's it's a completely different reality than the reality of almost everybody else that, that lives near me.
0: Traditionally, Republicans opposed unions. That's probably been a 20th century story. And then Democrats were the party of, the, of, the, of unions. And that, I guess, from, maybe from Roosevelt on, or earlier, wasn't it? The Democratic Party was, part of it was ethnic urban labor was part of the Democrat coalition, whereas the Republican Party was the Main Street Party, if you will.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mentioned this a little bit in the in the review, but it, it always depends on sort of where you want to norm the parties from. And mm-hmm. so, you know, depending on how fa- far back you want to go, you're going to hear different issues. I think I think at the inception of the Republican Party, it was much more the case that this was, you know, this was an issue that might trend more one direction than another in, in a region, in an election, but it was not the kind of thing where you had sort of staunch opposition on one side and, and staunch support on the other. That's that's a thing which has evolved over the course of the American political scene, and and my sense is that's something that's getting a, l- a little dis- bit disrupted in the contemporary. I don't know the last last four or five years. I can't. I I don't know what would possibly cause that disruption, but something. <laughs>
0: yeah, you know, let's talk more about that because I I'm interested in in that. It's very it's interesting to to try to think through because you suggest there's a switch going on. I mean Reagan, one of the sort of most memorable things he did early in his presidency was to break the uh, air traffic control union. And, and, and that set a tone, I think, actually. I think, you know, historians would say that's the, the beginning of the deunionization. There's been an increase in unionization in the public employee sector, but everywhere else in our economy has been a pretty, a pretty marked decline in unionization in the private sector. So I, I do think most people think of the Republican Party as anti-union, but we do seem to be undergoing a, a kind of a shift. I think it, the Biden administration brokered a, or it led a congressional it led to charge for a congressional action to force the railroad unions to settle with with management.
1: I might be wrong, but I I believe the only sitting senator to speak out against the stuff that the only one that I saw for sure, uh, the stuff that the Biden administration was spearheading, which was signed by AOC and and all these other people, was Josh Hawley. I mean, which is kind of, if you had told me, you know, 10 years ago that you're going to have this prominent, very conservative Southern senator be the person who's supporting the railroad workers as they sort of seek to strike and get a better deal for themselves, it just would have been, it would have been completely unimaginable.
0: I agree. I did notice that also, that Hawley opposed this this government-imposed settlement. And you point out that the Democratic Party, I think it was Obama in 08, he was the first Democratic presidential candidate to win the majority of votes from people who make more than $200,000 a year. And I believe that that trend is only accelerated. So the Democratic Party is really the party of management <laughs> increasingly, although it's hard to, our, our economy has changed a great deal. You know, is a mid-level manager at Google who makes $300,000 a year management, or is he labor?
1: Very, very hard to pin down.
0: Right. And, or is the, is the lawyer, we have a, the professional managerial class, as they say, is, um it's kind of a new phenomenon. So, so, so it's not all together, but it is the case that the billionaires, they are, that is capital. They're not billionaires because of income. They're billionaires because of the capital that they, the assets that they have. And they break Democrat, I think, probably nine to one at this point.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I don't, I don't want to disparage billionaires. I think even some of them, you know, have worked pretty hard. Obviously, you know, there's a difference between inheritance and, and, and somebody who starts a company.
0: Well, okay, but fair enough, but their interests are different. Absolutely. I mean, I'm with you completely. Yes. Yep. I mean, Elon Musk has created tremendous value. Yep. And done these remarkable things that I wish I, uh, I have a less high view of Facebook. For instance, I don't think that adds much value to people's lives. Sure. But be, but be that as it may, his interests uh, are different from the interests of a person whose ambition in his life is not to get rich. But uh, yeah. as you said, they want to have a, they want to have a family home, raise their kids in a decent neighborhood, and and you know, enjoy, enjoy their family.
1: That's right. And, uh, and, and worship on the Sabbath. I would say the, the way that I try to conceptualize it is, you know, think about the work and think about the relationship of workers and employers, as opposed to sort of capital interests, the, the, the more Marxian categories of capital interests, labor interests. And because when you're thinking about the work, I think you you begin dealing with a Christian category, or if not a Christian category, at least an Aristotelian category, something pre-Christian where you're talking about the human activity, Right. Humans are engaged in a common activity, a common project. They share a common interest, and in that sense, you realize unions ex- are have to be theoretically acceptable because politics is theoretically acceptable. Mm-hmm. We're allowed. We're we're just political animals, and we have to be able to engage in politics. We have an active life, and the question I think most conservatives ought to think through, and, and particularly if you're a Christian conservative, is is the ruling discipline economics or is it politics? And, and, uh, you know, I think there's a certain brand of libertarianism, which would say that politics just needs to get in line with what economics says. And this Mm -hmm. is The Economist. Like, once you know this, you just don't ever need to read The Economist again. And and I've read it for years, you know, with great enjoyment. But they're just always going to say that your politics of any country, any community has to get in line and do what is in the interest of this, you know, economic model of this formula that's going to expand X, whatever X is, GDP, you know, fill in the blank. And, and I think the Christian counter-argument is to say, no, 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 even, even if we let the economist run the world, we are letting it. So all all economic systems exist because of a deliberative process of determining what the nature of the just is among us. And so that, that political action is always pre-economic. If you think that that's true, then the next question to say is, well, then as workers, we are doing something economically, but we also always are doing something politically as well. Mm-hmm. And we're either just letting everything happen, however the money counters want it to happen, or we can have a say, and we can we can sort of say, "Well, you know, this is great, but we need bathroom breaks, you know this, <laughs> or or whatever. you know there's there's all kinds of things you can ask for.
0: Yeah, I guess the sticking point in the railroad negotiations had to do with, sick days versus vacation days and so it's not a question of hourly wage although that's all, all uh, that's a very important issue but it's also a, a question of you know negotiating to have space for the fullness of life and not just uh and not just the job at hand what you also talk about and i found it very perceptive and, and convincing that a lot of uh, the politically correct stuff, the woke stuff, the diversity talk, is a kind of changing of the subject. I I agree, and I think that this is one reason that uh, why woke capital is not a contradiction, because it speaks to this inherently political character of all human life. And if we can change the subject from the concrete conditions of our work life to more abstract questions Mm -hmm. of you know, um, the DEI fixations of the moment that I think this serves the interests of capital.
1: Absolutely. You know, we, you see this happen in any number of ways. And so the, the woke capital way is it's, it's a little bit like title inflation. You know, we can, (laughs) we can can give like a, a lavender coalition room or whatever at our group, at our office, and then we don't have to pay anyone. And so it's, it's just kind of, we're going to give you things that don't cost us anything so that you don't ask for more. And, and so in personal negotiations, right, you see that happen in title inflation. It's kind of obvious if you go to your boss and you ask for a raise, he says, well, we can't give you a raise, but we can make you the you know, chief, you know, officer of enjoyment. You know, it's like, right. it's not real. I think the other, the, there's two other ways that it happens. One is, another, another way is, if you're an employer and you've got a group that's forming and you have some some fear that that group is going to unionize. They're going to ask for things that are going to make your life harder as a manager. They're going to ask for things that you know you you might get in trouble for if you have to go up the chain and say, "Hey, we have to provide this." If you can carve off inside of that group, it's a classic divide and conquer strategy. Mm. And say, well, it's not it's not the this you know the corner office managers who are who are really your enemy here. It's it's those people, and you sort of pit identity group against identity group among the employees. You know, that's a that's a classic way of, of trying to dampen down and, and that actually has a long history in the in the history of union busting in the United States. Yes. And so, you know, the importing of of Chinese labor and then blaming it on them, you know, after you've brought them in, and getting the Irish to fight them or, or something along those lines. I mean, railroads were doing this you know, hundred years ago and more. And then I and then the third way that I think is the most insidious and and is also happening pretty regularly is that, you know, union formation tends to happen when there's some grievance. And usually it's not just, you know, gosh, inflation is 7% and my raise was only two, I really need that extra 4%. I mean, people are, people are uh, industrious, they'll figure out how to make do in a, in a slightly hard pinch. Usually there's gotta be some pain point where employees are feeling you know, some small subset of employees are feeling something and, and articulating it to one another and that spreads people realize wow yeah i I've, I've been feeling like that manager is sort of unjustly treating me you know i've been feeling like i need to have time off to take care of my kids too i can't pick them up from school in time because of the work hours or whatever you know these things happen in all, any number of iterations okay when that happens what management wants more than anything else is to take those people into a side room and and learn that they're having these problems so that they can either isolate them to get rid of them or so that they can sort of absorb the cost of this smaller grievance of the vocal person so that it doesn't spread into a general grievance. And management is aware that the best way to do that is through using the language of diversity, inclusion, and equity inside of their HR departments. By getting everyone who's most sort of frustrated, who's most, you know, feelings are hurt, who's most having, you know, sometimes very genuine grievances and preventing them from talking to other people. You know, put them on some long-term process where they have to go through a bunch of meetings in, in a corner, at the end of which either you get rid of them or you give them, you know, you pay them some some smaller piece so that you don't have the, the larger problem of political activity among your employees it's a known it's a known tactic there's there's you know left wing outlets writing about how the fact that this is going on
0: I guess I count myself as guardedly pessimistic about the future of labor in the current climate
1: i I'm not surprised Rusty
0: Marco Rubio has said the market is made for man, not man for the market. We've just talked about Hawley being on record opposed to this forced settlement in the railroad case, but nevertheless, the Republican party still remains pretty much in the Reagan mold, it seems to me. I don't see the Republican party getting behind Orrin Cass's recommendations about crafting pro-union legislation to encourage the reunionization of the private economy. And on the other side, I just think the Democratic party is just the, the its source of funding, it's power base now. It just seems very unlikely that the Democratic Party can do more than satisfy its current union allies rather than spearheading any kind of changes in in the dynamics that we've been living under for the last generation.
1: I, I mean, I I can appreciate the the pessimism and I'd, I'd hate to you know count myself an optimist. So that's uh, <laughs> you put me in a hard position, Rusty. I, I would just say... The the status quo cannot stand. And it, it just it is not working for American workers and something's gotta happen. And and so my theory of of you know what what a possible brighter future looks like has to include something like, you know, worker solidarity. I think that actually the anti-immigration movement that you see bubbling up in the post-Trump era is in part, I mean, you know, it's got a lot of parts. We're a very big country. There's a lot of actors. But it, it is in part a recognition that the combination of exporting factories and importing workers has resulted in a net loss of the value of American citizenship. It meant in strictly economic terms. Right. And if that's the case, I, I don't see these as unrelated phenomenon. And one of the things I sort of i am I'm trying to articulate in the essay is I think I even say this, you know. You wouldn't need to build a wall if instead of having you know whatever tiny fraction of private sector workers unionized, you had eighty percent.
0: Right. No, you don't need e-verify if you um, if you have a, a unionized workforce. But I, I I do agree. There's a kind of unsustainable quality to the current configuration in our society. Failure to flourish among middle class Americans strikes me as the fundamental threat to the social contract right now. But we have incredibly low unemployment rates, historically low unemployment rates, a real labor shortage. This is ideal conditions under which to promote unionization. But we don't see it happening.
1: Well, I I think you do see it happening more so than you did 10 years ago. So the question is, does that trajectory continue to grow or not?
0: Ah, okay
1: you know it's it's certainly certainly i'm uh, i'm articulating a, a hope and a and a possible future not a guaranteed you know thing that's about to happen
0: i take that i take that counsel i mean the starbucks unionization amazon
1: unionization and
0: you pointed it out also in higher ed these are new they weren't that was that was even less imaginable a decade ago so i count myself corrected and maybe i should switch to guardedly optimistic rather than guardedly pessimistic.
1: <laughs> I, I'm happy to, yeah, and welcome you welcome to the team. Welcome
0: you into the crowd, yeah, into your right. position. Well, Colin, thanks a lot for a wonderful review. And I appreciate also your your commitment to a, a Christian understanding of of our of our strange postmodern, post-industrial, hopefully sl- somewhat re-industrialized economy.
1: Cool. Thanks. Thanks, Rusty.